after leading uh, innovative New England schools and hanging out with Ted Sizer, helping him launch the Coalition of Essential Schools, Elliot Washer and Dennis Litke launched Big Picture Learning in 1995. And the following year, with some help from the uh, Rhode Island Commissioner, Peter McWalters, they opened the Met in uh, downtown Providence. I visited a couple years later, 1999, and, and uh, had a chance to talk to the first graduating class, and I witnessed what was um, and remains um, probably the most innovative school model that I have ever encountered, one that has this radically simple idea of one kid at a time, uh, a school model where students leave two days a week to learn in the community. And now 30 years later, uh, big picture learning is, is really widely recognized as the world leader in, uh, in work-based and experiential learning. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and I have the distinct pleasure of being joined uh, by uh, our good friend, Elliot Washer, the co-founder of Big Picture Learning. Elliot, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here and good to see you. It's, uh, <laughs> it's really a treat to see you. Um, Elliot, I, um, I think after my second visit, there, this great book came out called One Kid at a Time, uh, Big Lessons from a Small School. That was by another Elliot, Elliot Levine. Um, and that really put helped put you on the map. I, um, Ted Sizer and Tom Peters wrote the forward to that. And how did you get such a great um, book out so quickly? It was just a few years after you had started the school. Yeah, well, um, so unlike most schools, um, Dennis and I have been doing this work for a long, long time. And all, of course, it's about the, the, the students, the youth, and the community. But it was also a school that had uh, a lot of intention around um, being local and global at the same time. Right. But this, was, this was going to be a design that would impact the state, community, and international. And so we had those plans in place. And uh, some of them got executed on and really happened. And some of them are still waiting to happen. So Elliot was there. He was a postdoc at Harvard. Oh. And uh, he was ready to come on and be an advisor, and uh, he did his research, yeah. and that the outcome of it. That it's book. just it's a it's a remarkable book, and it was done early in your uh, in your history, and really helped put put you on the map. Where speaking of in the wayback machine, wh where did this idea of uh, leaving to learn where and making that a big part of the you know half of the program? Wh where did that come from? It's a, a really radical proposition. Yeah, uh, well, it came from really both of us. And, uh, you know, Dennis was much more uh, in some ways around the relationship stuff, which fits, fits into this. I was much more about, you know what? We're really learning outside of school. That's where I learned my so whole you're, life. You were the relevance guy. More relevance, although we were both had both of in us and putting them together. Uh, that's how you get the rigor or the vigor, um, and not the other way around. You're stuck on where we always are if you just start with that, academics. And so we, we figured that out 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago. And every time we tried to do this at 
uh, Thayer and other places, we said, we didn't go far enough. We didn't go far enough. It's not one day. It's got to be two days. It's got to be really, really a part of what school is. Elliot, I mentioned that the, the school was uh, in downtown Providence. It was in the Shepherd Building, which was Peter McWalter's office. It was on the first floor of the commissioner's building, which so I, what was Peter uh, uh, an early champion? Did oh. he like the idea or did you have to fight him uh, to, to put a school in his building and make it a radical proposition? Uh, absolutely not. He, he wanted this school to happen. He brought people to the table as we did, uh, both from the community, from government, uh, from the unions, universities, industry. Stanley Goldstein was uh, a benefactor and the head of our board, the Met board at the time and big picture. Ted Sizer was head of the big picture board. Debbie Meyer was on the board, Seymour Saracen, Howard Fuller. So we, we had this and Peter had to work a new iteration of a high school through his department, which this was not a charter. And it was not a public school in, in a sense of a, a belonging to a, a district in a place. It, the place was all of Rhode Island. And we could accept students from anywhere and we could start schools from anywhere in Rhode Island. Right. It was a line item in the state budget. So there was a, a, a ton of back work in developing this. Every month we had to go to the State Board of Education, get approval for what they would call a high school what a high school could be or is. And we would say, we're going to do it this way. And they had to approve every step along the way, advisory systems, competency-based, learning through your interests, getting out, getting out in the real world, learning plan for every student. And it became a formal document that said, this is school. So Peter moved that part forward. And then he had to convince his department he was convinced. <laughs> Not everybody in the department. Your, your school broke a lot of rules. So that's apparently a lot of departments. That's right. Because what they do is they got a little bit of regulation and a lot of authority over it. And they go, wait, you can't do that. And go, well, who says so? The Board of Ed says we can now. Elliot, this, this school just works so so differently. Um, I, I just I just remembered. Do you remember um, opening uh, Met West in Sacramento? I did. In, in the early days, you had to build this. I remember the alignment map that showed their the sort of early version of A to G of the, the college prep curriculum. And you had to build um, this map that showed how learning to leave and uh, big picture curriculum actually matched up with California standards. So you've been playing this game of trying to help people understand how to fit your model in for 30 years now. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's, there's so many great stories or interesting stories. So they, when we, when you, uh, Gates gave us funding and we went to, uh, Oakland and Sacramento, uh, the, um, UC system called us in and said, uh, we get students of color, but not necessarily students who are um, marginalized in communities that are, you know, that don't have a lot of money. And I, we, and so we sat down and I said, look, um, your model says to serve those who are least served. 
And you know, you're not doing that. So we'll, we'll work out with you on that. And what we did was we created a document, an A through G course requirement, which was competency-based that allowed our students to be out of school two days a week, do projects, do travel experiences, um, all those pieces where we kind of threw away the clock. Because as Mike Rose used to say, as mastery is foregrounded, the clock recedes. Yeah. Um, you don't pay attention to the clock. Right. And, uh, and that's what we try to do, growth over time, over four years of high school. So we did get those course approvals and we started working on it. Yeah. One of those thousands of stories. There are. Uh, Elliot, I, I just think um, I, I was thinking of our the last couple books that we've written and the journey that we've been on the last few years. I, I just I have come back to understanding the importance of engagement and relevance and learner agency. And in some ways, those feel like fresh new insights um, f for me and the field. And it, you know, it, it's such a treat to read your new book and and realize you had these insights in the 80s and uh, have been preaching that gospel of, of experiential learning for a long time. Oh, yeah. No, ab absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the, the there's stories in here, of course, about that are personal. You know, the, the question you get asked, I get asked is, uh, what made you do this? You know, how'd you start? Everybody has, and I make up a different story every day. I mean, I have a different story. I'll make one up. You have a lot of stories. Right? So I told a story about, you know, my uncles in, in the first few chapters, and I was learning outside of school. Yeah. And every time I went back into school, they would say, that's not the right information. I said, yeah, no, I, my, my uncle took me to meet this astronomer over here. My uncle had a third grade education, but he used the city as his learning. And I, he said, no, 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 that's not right about the planets. And I say, you know, so I'd mark it the way I, the astronomer told me. I get it wrong on the test and I end up in the principal's office all the time. And he introduced me. He was in a building on East 40th, um, 10 East 40th Street, which is one time was the tallest building in the world. And it was a place where all these, he had a cigar, cigarette, newspaper stand, uh, where all these agents um, of very famous people, athletes and movie people and show people had their, uh, they had their uh, agents had their offices and I would meet everybody. So I would meet Jackie Robinson. I would meet Debbie Reynolds. I would meet Eddie Fisher. And, you know, and I'd go, well, you know what? You can get access to people and it is through a relationship. And I figured yeah. that out when I was very, very young and kept on doing stuff like that. And also parks. I learned a ton in parks, but school got all the credit and they get all the blame too, but they don't, shouldn't get all the credit and they shouldn't get all the blame. You learn to read on your grandmother's lap just as much as you learn to read in school. You need the relationship and the love to learn to read as well. Elliot, uh, once you're about 15 years into building your national network of big picture schools, 2013, you wrote Leaving to Learn. A lot of our listeners have, have uh, read this book. That was a great chronicling of the, of the school model in the, in the early days. Um, and with, with some help from American Student Assistance, you've just written a new book called Learning to Leave. From, <laughs> from Leaving to Learn to Learning to Leave. That's right. Why, why the flip other than being clever? Well, 
because leaving to learn was how to increase student engagement and reduce the dropout rate. And we had a lot of things wrong at the, at the policy level um, that the, and, and we were, and, and many times, unfortunately, it's the students who get the blame. There's something wrong with them, not our system. And so uh, leaving, uh, leaving to Learn uh, pointed out different things like uh, fitting, that uh, a person has to go to a school they think they fit to, but then the school has to fit the student as well. That's the other part of that covenant. Uh, and mattering, um, things that matter to you and uh, ignoring students' interest in how to start um, where they're learning really is they're motivated to learn. Learning to leave is really about after 10 years and after all these years, Dennis and I have known each other 52 years, I said, we, I looked at what we've done and I said, it's not about, you can't reform this. It's too difficult to reform. It's so baked in and the entropy and draw to the center is so difficult that you have to really learn to leave and, and create new ways, pay attention to new ways. And some of them may be old, but they're new to the system. Uh, new forms and new measures. And we have to get more community minded than institutional and system minded. And that's um, where the change is going to come. American Student Assistance uh, is, is really a terrific partner. They they uh, sponsor our new Pathways campaign, and and they were a partner of yours in um, in this book. Their president, Jean Eddy, uh, wrote the, a terrific introduction to the book. She said, kids need opportunities to experiment with careers and test and try their interests through real-world experiments while they're in middle and high school so they can better craft a deliberate post-secondary strategy based on passions and ultimate career goals. Uh, I, I love the, the way, well, first of all, we both appreciate ASA, and I, I loved how the end of your book was really um, a dialogue with, uh, with Julie Lammers from, from ASA about what mm -hmm. uh, real-world learning means at, at scale and the, the kind of policy implications. Um, but they, they've been a good partner, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, they, they get it uh, as a foundation that learning takes place everywhere, not just in school. And you have to learn to credit learning in and outside of school. You have to have places where you have a, young people have mentors, um, where they develop relationships that are um, start with their interests and choices. And as we both talk about, it's not just about having a job. It's about finding meaning in your life through your yeah. through the work that you really love to do. And that that's possible. That's not impossible. Um, and and that's what gets people to learn more, uh, stay in uh, different, uh, move to different careers. Because as Van Gogh said, as you go deep, you learn many things. And so yeah. we go mile wide, not inch, and and just an inch deep. We do the opposite. You right, have I, to. I, Here's another phrase. I I don't remember hearing you say this, but I love it. It's the idea of going deep inside the outside. That's right. That's this right. Book That's is all about real world learning and about getting deeply inside the outside where young people are engaged with adults around their interest in search of doing things that matter to them and that give their life meaning. That's beautiful. 
Yeah. And I would add, and it is in the book and their community and their family, all those things are really what we're, what we say we're trying to do in our mission and vision statements, but then we have a narrow framework of what we measure and that drives everything. And these things get tossed to the side. Um, if they're, if they're there, they're there by accident, not by design. And that's, those are the students we put up to show everybody, but the system doesn't do that in an intentional way, in a, in a practical way. And so we're trying to change, and we always have, that's the flip, from practice yeah. to policy, from experience to theory, and, and that, you know, from grasping to language, from learning to teaching, teaching being subordinate to learning, which is more important. So that's, that's the book showing new ways and then new forms derives from that. Yeah. From do to learn, from um, function to form. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we got it the other way around. We say know and do all the time. You got to do before you know. And, I, I, you know, you can learn from a book. Absolutely. But then you have to learn the tricks of the trade from somebody out through your experience. By the time you're three years old and a child is already identifying interests and who they want to learn from. I want grandma to tie my shoe, teach me how to tie my shoe, not grandpa, not you. You get away. They, we're not using that biological impulse about how we uh. really learn inside of school. And we can. So... After learn learning uh, by doing, uh, I, again, I love this. The function follows the form. The third chapter of your book is on new forms. Right. So I take that in a couple different ways. One is that if you really take experiential learning seriously, it requires a new form, a new kind of school model. And that's you, you nationally and then globally have, have created networks of like-minded schools around this new model. But you've also been really busy in the last 10 years creating other new forms. So we'd love to just have you chat about the form that learning's taking place in. Yeah, flash that book again. Yeah. It's got a cool new cover. I love that cover. Thank you. Yeah, Ian Robinson designed it. So forms are, in the last 10 years, and we played with this. You, you were really the person who uh, said, you know, when early on in Gates, um, we were much more uh, youth development oriented than almost any school out there. You, you, you really did identify us like that. And, and that was no mistake. That was a really good thing. Um, having said that, we created now something called Be Unbound. Uh, Be Unbound is big picture learning without a school. Hmm. Uh, in youth development organizations, we can plug in and we can get the uh, younger students as well as older students who leave youth development uh, engaged through their interests, getting them out in the community uh, around those identified interests and getting them connected to places and to adults who share similar uh, interests. That's powerful. That's how you learn. And those connections build uh, what Julia Freeland Fisher and others call social capital. Um, they do this automatically. There's, they, you don't have to teach somebody how to build social capital. They just do it. 
It's who we are. You crave a relationship with somebody you want to learn from and get better at what you want to get better at. And if you allow those things to happen and they automatically do out in the real world, beautiful. So then we create also, and I've been always involved with the skill trades and tacit learning, which is one of these new ways. Now, we don't talk about it in schools at all because we can't measure it, but you know more than you can say. And you can demonstrate that through what you do. Um, that said, and there's a lot of biological, neurological evidence ar around this. We don't pay much attention to it. That, that said, when you have people in the skilled trades who traditionally the uh, rigor of the trades is not acknowledged, how smart you have to be, how skillful you have to be, how you solve problems, all the work that goes into getting good at something, the practice that you have to make. Uh, Louis Armstrong said at one time, if I miss one day of practice, I know. If I miss two days, the band knows. If I miss three days, the critics know. You got to practice all the time. You know, you said to me earlier about retirement. Well, you're going, I miss a couple of days, I get stale. And so you, those things about the trades teach the rest of us about the ability to practice. And practice isn't just this muscle memory. Practice is an embodied cognition, which we don't pay attention to in schools once again. So the, the work that we do with Be Unbound, Project Insight, Harbor Freight Fellows is to elevate the skilled trades and to elevate embodied cognition, to elevate measures that we don't pay attention to, that the real world knows. Anybody on a playground can tell you who's the best at something. It's like that. And then we spend all this time deconstructing everything around our measures. Uh, there's, there's something to both. And we have to understand what it means and be culturally sensitive to this to show to allow young people to show not just how smart they are on a test but how you are smart which is real real different in uh in in other news in uh new forms you, you've had some success in planning the big picture flag around the world there's now big picture schools in australia new zealand europe been exciting to watch. Uh, yeah, I mean, I and I can honestly say that, and we did this as we were developing our schools, and you know, from working, watching us work, and working with us, uh, and with and want are big words in the book as well. Just remind a reminder that we didn't go to any place that didn't invite us in. First, people called us up, and then we went. And we went to Oakland and Sacramento, L.A., Camden, Detroit, Baltimore, Philly. All those places called us up. We didn't market, really market ourselves um, in that way. So and so we spread slower. And we our intention was never to have a gazillion schools, but to influence American public education and what uh, what learning really is and how to how to credit that learning in and outside of school. 
Hey, Elliot, quick aside, um, our, our friend Ryan Craig, um, who, who's sort of the leading advocate for apprenticeships in America today, has been making this argument that I think is a new, fresh argument in favor of what you've been doing for 30 years. He argues that AI is going to be most beneficial to those with the most experience. That if you understand the craft and the context you will best be able to use artificial intelligence to leverage your capabilities. And so he argues there's a new gap called the experience gap, that AI is going to automate a bunch of the easy stuff and that the real value add is going to be added by people with experience. And part of his argument now is that starting not later than high school, learners need to gain real world experience so that they understand a uh, a context of their interest deeply and can begin to leverage powerful tools within that context. Do you, you buy any of that? Um, yes, I do. Uh, absolutely. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of the, I don't know how many weeks ago it was Wall Street Journal or some newspaper said uh, Harvard, somebody in chatbot used uh chatbot to take a course, the whole, all the courses for the freshman year at Harvard, and they got a 3.4 or something like that. It was, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you remember this. And I went, of course they did. It has nothing to do with experience in the real world. It's all text-based. So yeah. all they're asking you to do is spit back a lecture or what was on a test, but nothing from the real world. And unless you have experiences in the real world that are personal and relational, that you've touch things and you're in place and you're with people, that's when AI becomes important to you. Absolutely. And yeah. without that, without that, it, we didn't need chatbot in that way that uh, people are worried about cheating on the test. All it is, is the answers are already in the darn book. Yeah. So you're just being, you're, you're a personal chatbot, you know, you're just, chewing, spitting back out what what was asked of you. So there's nothing new there unless you really touch the world and you go, oh, my gosh, this didn't work. How do I fix this? Or it didn't, it, it didn't happen the way they said in the book. Well, you know, this is what happens all the time. And that and that that's when young people who are in school and told one thing, and when they get out into the real world, they get this revelation. Oh, oh my gosh, it isn't what they said. It's very, very different. Yeah. So I think he's absolutely you know, right, if I understand what you're saying, absolutely. That experience is what's important, doing that and then knowing. Doing and then knowing. The uh, fourth chapter of your book's on new measures, and you've had an exciting development from uh, from Australia called the International Big Picture Learning Credential. What What is that? Why do you think it's important? Well, uh, yeah, we'll uh, I'd love to talk about a couple of these measures, but I, the IBPLC, the International Big Picture Learning Credential, uh, was developed by our colleagues in Australia. Our executive director is Viv White. Um, you know, I helped her along the, the, the way, but this is something that they really did. And the beauty of the, I, many of the beauties of the IBPLC, I'll give you a few, is first Viv figured out that she needed a vetting and warranting agent 
that everybody would accept. So she formed a partnership with the University of Melbourne and their psychometricians there, Sandra Milligan. And they took teacher judgment, student self-assessment and mentor judgment. And they kept on looking at student work, spinning that into an algorithm that psychometricians did. And over time and with more data pumped into it, they honored teacher judgment. And so students at our schools in Australia get in to the universities, most of them in, in Australia, in medicine, law, architecture, engineering, high professions, into the trades, into technical colleges, into the military, out into the workforce without taking any kind of ACT, SAT, or GPA. And this is, I think, a breakthrough. It isn't the end all. We're at the beginning, but it, it's adding a lot to the field. And so when you can, when you take a, get um, these measures that are way, way less, uh, not filled with cultural biases, we're getting students who are Aboriginal students, students who are refugee students into the university system and into work because they're showing how they are smart, not just how smart they are to the test. So this is a big, it's a big, I think, a big breakthrough. And so do a lot of other people. We've got some very good research on it from a third party evaluators. We brought it to the United States with some Lego money. Um, we're looking for a vetting and warranting partner with the Uni Melbourne, and we're talking to ASU, talking to UCLA, we, we want to find somebody and we want to really try this out in the United States. So that's, that's a big deal. Also, two other things. Um, I spent a lot of time around um, uh, health and wellness. And I formed a partnership personally with the uh, American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I think we're the only group that's done this. And they have six evidence-based measures that schools are really bad at, including our own in a lot of ways. And that is uh, sleep. We, get, we don't let kids sleep. Movement. We don't have them move a lot. Uh, moving to a plant-based, low-fat, low-sugar, low-salt way of being living to that influences marginalized communities around diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all these things that can be, these are all preventions, having healthy relationships, managing your stress and understanding uh, substances, prescription and non that can harm you. Um, those six evidence-based measures we don't do in school. These are new measures for us and why we're ignoring them, because I figured out a long time ago, if you're asleep, you can't learn. No. <laughs> I mean, you're asleep. And if the kids are asleep in school and we're saying, OK, now. Where, where are we going to go? So we have to infuse these in other in some way, shape and form in our schools on a daily basis. And it's the well-being and meaningfulness in the lives of communities and families that these measures impact lifelong 
you know, processed foods are really harmful to us. And uh, a diet of processed foods is going to give you a lot of problems over five and 10 years. So you, we got to get away from this because however well-educated you are, if you're sick, what's the point? So I don't know why we haven't come to terms with this yet, but that's another one of those new measures. And the last one I'll just mention quickly, because I know it's near and dear to you, is around uh, sustainability. Um, so in the Namahana school that we're working with now, um, we're taking big picture design and in, in interconnecting that with Ina, which is, a, 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 it's hard to describe, but it's having a reciprocal relationship um, with people and the planet, the land and everywhere you go. So it's not that the land is just giving you, it's that you have to take care of and give back. And, and taking the sciences that we know and putting the Aina together with that in a school design that allows students to get out, I think is going to be very powerful around some new measures as well. So those are a few of them. I love those additions, Elio. Thank you. I, um, I didn't know about those and um, we'd love to include some information about that in our, in our show notes. It strikes me, Elliot, that even with um, the big trend towards learner centered and, and whole child education, um, almost none of those efforts really deal with wellness in the, in the comprehensive way that you suggested. And uh, all, all of those elements that you listed are, are so research-based and so widely known uh, to, to contribute uh, to wellness, both physical and mental wellness, that um, this is an area that we have to get better at. So I, I, we, we really appreciate you mentioning those as um, forms of, of new measures. Yeah, I mean they 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 just are our system baked in getting up, you know getting up at six a.m. or five a.m. to get to school and then you're asleep, and it impacts everything. So no, thanks. I I think that you know I've been talking to people about these for years, and we we've got to get somewhere with this. This is about we have a system of intervention something's got to really go wrong and then somebody pushes a button and gets involved with the lives of a young person or a family. But what we're talking about here with advisory, with learning plans for every student, with competency-based, with these six measures is prevention. And we have to move towards a system. Of course, we need interventions, but we have to move towards a system of prevention. Of course, we need know and do, but we also need do and know. I mean, you can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. It's not impossible, <laughs> you know, no. but we make it like it is. No, I appreciate that. E even well-intentioned, well-developed, sophisticated, you know, multi-tier systems of support are all focused on early warning. They're focused on crisis prevention or at least spotting a crisis and intervening right. as opposed to promoting wellness, right? And they're related, but they're very different. Uh, so we have to get smarter about building in um, a core of wellness and a core of sustainability uh, into our schools. This is really timely. I'm, I'm finishing up a chapter on 
support and guidance. And this has given me a, a set of new insights that I'm going to include tonight. Yeah, um, as we wrap up, um, what, what's next for you and, and big picture? Well, the, that program is called BP Living, by the way. And we, you know, one of the things that we do that I hope we do um, as much as we, as with and want, you have to be with people and you have to want to learn. This is a Seymour Saracen things. You have to want to learn. And that's through your interests. Next, well, uh, I'm very much interested, as I always have been, but even more now in um, community and not institution, uh, and how community can drive uh, change that is pointed out in the book, like with, with um, initiatives like Be Unbound, Harbor Freight Fellows, and, and using having students with us who are talking to other students that influence their family and community around these six measures. And they, there could be more, but those are ones from ACLM and we're, we've been working with them. They've been great in uh, helping us think this through. We've got a great website. We've got a lot of content on it for people. It's all free. Uh, Donique Dolly is running that. Uh, Andrea Purcell is running the IBPLC. Charlie Plant's doing uh, Harbor Freight Fellows. And that is, uh, Anthonette is, Pina is doing uh, Beyond Bound. So we have a lot going on to develop uh, these pieces. And of course, Dennis has uh, the college piece. So somewhere down the road, Dennis doing the college and us doing the real world and the, the certifications around embodied cognition are going to meet. Yes. That's kind of what we what we thought because not everybody needs to go right away we always said that but when you when you if you've left and you have a few credits college unbound is the place for you now and so we have we have something happening figuring it out going down the road as usual as we do we learn We've been talking to Elliot Washer. His new book is called Learning to Leave, How Real-World Learning Transforms Education, uh, sponsored by ASA. Uh, Elliot, do you have a big takeaway for all the ed leaders that are listening? What's the one thing you'd like them to think about? Um, Prevention rather than intervention. Pay attention to who's in front of you. Learning is personal. Learning is personal and it's relational. It's, it's not, you know, we have a lot of industrialized words and, and I understand completely why, but maybe we have to rethink those like com- customized and personalized rather than personal and, and look at what we're doing and as through the experiences of what's going on outside of school and learning how to credit that, allowing for policies like transportation, using Emblaze and Be Unbound, which are technology platforms that allow you to manage where students are, and there's others. Um, so they are in school, but outside of school, getting deep inside the outside, as uh, you pointed out earlier on, the, paying attention to the real world and how we really learn, not just academics. That'll come. Elliot Washer, Learning to Leave. Get it now. It's a terrific book. You'll love it. Um, Elliot, 
you're you're the modern day Dewey. You're the the uh, the, the prophet of experiential learning. Um, you, you've just made such a big global contribution. Um, all of us deeply appreciate you and your work. Uh, I love this new book and the way it calls us back to new ways of learning, new forms of learning, new measures of learning. Um, it's really, it's another really important contribution. Elliot, we appreciate you and uh, your book and you being here. And thanks, Tom, and everybody get out there and add to new ways, new forms, and new measures. This isn't the end, for sure. This is always moving, hopefully moving us forward a bit. And, and everybody needs to contribute to this, be a contributor. Thanks so to our producer, great. Mason Pasha, and the whole Getting Smart team for making this show possible. We also thank our friends at, at ASA, not only for sponsoring uh, Elliot's yeah. book, but our New Pathways uh, campaign. And until next week, keep learning, keep leading, and keep innovating for equity. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 